welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Hadar Avaram, Professor of Law at UC Hastings Law. We will discuss her new book, Yesterday's Monsters, The Manson Family Cases and the Illusion of Parole, which is published by the University of California Press. So welcome to the show, or well, rather, welcome back to the show, Hadar. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about this book, which I thought was fantastic. And you mention several times in your book uh, uh, another book that I I did an interview about a few months ago, uh, Jeff Melnick's book on on the Manson family, uh, Cre- Creepy Crawling. Um, but your book is taking a really different look at the Manson family and what it means than honestly anything else. I've personally ever really seen seen written about them, given that you're talking not so much about the crimes, but about sort of the experiences of Manson and the Manson family as as prisoners. Um, so I, I wonder, just to kind of situate listeners in the parole system that you're talking about, if you could say a little something about how the parole system actually works in practice, specifically in California, and sort of how it's changed over time. Sure. So in general, I think a, a good place to start is to remind listeners of a movie that many of us have probably seen, The Shawshank Redemption. And uh, those of you who saw The Shawshank Redemption may remember the scenes where Red comes before the parole board. And there's a bunch of people and they're asking him, are you rehabilitated? And he says, yes, I'm rehabilitated. That's God's honest truth. No danger to society here. And then they reject him time after time. So the depiction in the movie is of the parole system in the 40s, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, But it says more actually about the time that the movie was made, which was in the 90s, than it does about what happened in parole at the time. Because by the time they made the movie, there was already a very cynical perspective on parole. So here's the thing. Before the 70s, generally in the United States and certainly in California, the system of sentencing was indeterminate, which is to say the judge would give you a really broad range. Like the judge would say, you know, your sentence is three to 20 years, right? That's a very broad range. And you would start coming up for parole after three years, after the minimum. And then you would continue to come up for parole until the parole board decides that you've been rehabilitated. So the judge has the ability to give the big range and the parole board has an enormous amount of discretion to let you out. Now, in the 70s, for a variety of reasons that I talk about in the book, uh, there was massive despair of this system. And there was a shift to determinate sentencing. And what that meant is that for the most part, sentencing is set in California, it's set by the legislature, and there is uh, and, and parole basically only applies to a handful of cases, which are the cases of people who are doing life with parole, right? Which is the the uh, the sentence, the, the only sentence that's left that's indeterminate. Now, I should say that that's actually not a small number of people, because about a fourth of the prison population in California is people that are doing life. So just to give you guys perspective, uh, I'd say California now has about 120,000 prisoners. Uh, out of those people, about 700 folks are on death row. Um, 5,000 are doing life without parole. And there's about 25,000 who are doing life with parole. These are people who have been in the system for decades, and they periodically come up for parole. And uh, and they talk to the, to, to the, to the parole board. Uh, the parole board is uh, comprised of commissioners. The commissioners are political appointees by the governor. Uh, 
Um, and the hearing can last a few hours long. At present at the hearing are the inmate, the lawyer, um, victims and victims advocates, if, if they want to appear, the prosecutor, uh, some media representatives. And if the committee recommends somebody's release, the case then goes up to the governor because California is one of the four states in which the governor has a right to veto a recommendation to release someone. So after four months, so, so the governor has four months to uh, to put in the veto, and uh, and that's basically it. Uh, a fairly small percentage of people actually get out. Uh, up until very recently, it was very close to zero percent because our two previous, uh, our uh, two of our governors, uh, Gray Davis and Arnold Schwarzenegger, basically refused to let anybody out. Uh, and, and the parole board is kind of like an interaction, right? So the parole board also wouldn't let people out. And then with Jerry Brown, the, the gates opened a little bit. And now about 14 to 16 percent of the people that come up before the parole board get released. Almost never on your first or second hearing. Well, so in the book, you focus on the member, on well, on Charles Manson and the members of of the Manson family. Why did you think that they were a sort of especially helpful lens for looking at the parole system in California and how we kind of do parole and how we should think about the kind of processes behind the parole system? I think that's an excellent question. And a lot of people ask me why I would pick the folks that are the most reviled criminals in the state of California rather than pick, you know, say a more sympathetic person coming from a very poor background, poor person of color, you know, somebody who who, who would more easily evoke sympathy. Um, and the answer to that is complicated. So my first book, Cheap on Crime, was about the reforms that we made to criminal justice in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And one of the things that I found out was that the reforms were largely aimed at nonviolent people right? That's the low-hanging fruit. It's easier to sell to the public. And then I thought, well, how, how do we make sense of our opinions toward the folks that are on the other end of the spectrum? Sort of, you know, retrenching our idea that, you know, violent people are, you know, should never see the light of day again, right? And so I decided to pick the folks that were at the very extreme end of the spectrum and see how they were treated. There were several advantages to this, one of which is that uh, the Manson family inmates have been in prison now for 50 years which means that I have basically half a century of prison documentation, more than 40 years of parole hearings uh, backing up uh, the book. And that allowed me to paint a picture that tells a story of what happened with California parole over those 50 years and how that mirrors what happened with California punishment. So it was very helpful in that respect. It's also helpful because I have an interesting mix. I can see how gender comes into the picture because uh, three of the inmates that I talk about in the book were very young women when they committed the crime, uh, adolescents. Uh, so so there's, I, have, I have that going on. I think these cases are also interesting in their own rights. Uh, they're emblematic of some of, the, some of the developments in California. And more importantly, because these cases were considered so heinous and had such strong emotional balance in California they actually shaped a lot of our ideas about uh, extreme punishment. So basically, we have a bunch of cases that shaped California's regime of extreme punishment and then were in turn shaped by it. Now, of course, this choice of cases also has some flaws because, uh, for one thing, just to mention one thing, uh, all the inmates in my book are white, uh, which is not the case when you look at California prison and you see that uh, people of color are overrepresented in prison. 
But uh, interviewing the attorneys for these folks have reassured me that most of what I saw was not unique to these cases. It was not about their notoriety or high profile. It was the same sort of thing that you see in a lot of cases in, in, in California, and it allows me to tell a story. And I also find, I think in hindsight, now having found what I found about the parole board, that there's a, a, a moral strength in using these cases, because essentially the story that I have to tell in this book is so compelling. And the parole system in California is so Kafkaesque that you will find yourself having empathy and compassion for the Manson family. And if you have empathy and compassion for the Manson family, how about everybody else? Well, so in in the book, you talk about what you refer to as the extreme punishment trifecta, um, which I understood to be sort of like un- how until quite recently, the different sort of indeterminate sentences in California all practically amount to the same thing, although it sounds like that might be changing somewhat these days. Like, could you talk a little bit about that and also about the sort of peculiar place of Manson and the members of the Manson family in relation to that extreme punishment trifecta, given the historical circumstances surrounding their sentencing? Sure. So when I talk about the extreme punishment trifecta, I talk about the three sentences that are at the end of the spectrum in the California punishment scale. So we have the death penalty, we have life without parole, and we have life with parole. Let me start maybe with with your second question, because that'll help me answer the first question. So what's peculiar about the Manson family cases is that Charlie Manson and his followers were initially sentenced to death. This is in 1971, and this is at a time where where the tide in support of the death penalty is beginning to change to favor the death penalty in California. So the public, after sort of a dip in the 60s, a dip in support for the death penalty, comes back supporting the death penalty. And then in 1972, there's a reversal of fortune because uh, the Supreme Court of California, in a case called People versus Anderson, abolishes the death penalty in California. And they say this is a sentence that debases us all. It's, it's, you know, it's beneath human dignity to do this. And uh, this is uh, this is not welcomed by the public in California. People are shocked by this. Uh, even the lone dissenter in the decision holds a press conference in which he basically trashes all the other justices, right? So, so there's there's a, a sort of a swelling of public support for the death penalty just at a time that the California Supreme Court got rid of it. And of course, a few months after that, the Supreme Court of the United States decides Furman versus Georgia, and says, you know, there are serious. Uh, procedural problems with how we do the death penalty in California, and we have to we have to take care of those. And then the state starts scrambling, coming up with sort of Furman compliant, you know, uh, uh, forms of the death penalty. And eventually, the death penalty comes back, right? In Greg versus Georgia in 1976, and California brings their sort of Greg compliant uh, death penalty sentence uh, back in 1978. But it's too late for the Manson family. Because Manson and his followers, and many decades of other people, they're known colloquially as the class of 72, it's 107 folks, all have had their sentences commuted in 72 from death to life with parole. Now, you might ask, why life with parole? Because life without parole didn't actually exist in California until 1978. So this was the next highest option. And at the time, in the 70s, this is maybe, especially for younger listeners, hard to imagine, But it was not rare at all for somebody to do a sentence of 10, 
maybe 15 years for first degree murder. So when these folks start coming up for parole in 1978, which is seven years after their conviction, the victims and everybody else perceives this as an uphill battle to keep them behind bars because there is a genuine sense that the, at least the women might get out, right? And, and you see in the victims' memoirs that this is perceived as this, you know, like uphill battle that they have to fight. And so uh, we have a situation where everybody's kind of shell-shocked by this. And there's a legislative effort to make sure that we don't have to deal with another Manson again, right? So we bring back the death penalty deliberately and explicitly because of our concern about the Charlie Mansons of the future, right? We create life without parole because we don't want there to be any situation where even if the death penalty is not applicable for whatever reason, some Manson of the future goes unpunished, right? And then we start also ratcheting up life with parole, right? First, we uh, limit what happens at the board itself. Then we create in 1988 the extra layer where the governor has a veto, right? Of course, only on decisions to release, so it only works one way, right? Uh, We make it so that the commissioners are no longer people from the therapeutic professions, and in general, the therapeutic professions kind of come out of the picture. Uh, The commissioners are political appointees, as I mentioned before. Pretty much almost invariably, they come from law enforcement backgrounds. So we're talking former sheriffs, former chiefs of police, former correctional officers, that sort of thing, that sort of background. Up until just a handful of years ago, no continuing education. So no education on, say, substance abuse or mental health or things like that. Um, And then in 2008, we also add Marcy's Law to the mix, increasing the number and sorts of people that can speak for victims in the room. And at the same time, also increasing the time, the presumptive time between parole denials, right? So essentially, the product of these consecutive uh, developments is that we have, instead of three distinct punishments, right, the death penalty, life without parole, and life with parole, we now have basically one regime of interminable incarceration, right? We don't execute people in California. So everybody who's on death row is basically doing an expensive form of life without parole, then we have life without parole, and then we have life with parole, but nobody's getting out, so that's also like life without parole. And we've also increased, because of this, the average time that a person actually spends behind bars. So the average time that a person spends behind bars until they are paroled has grown from 12 years in 1980 to 28 years in 2008. But keep in mind that that's only the people who have gotten out. That doesn't factor in the people who die behind bars or the many people who are still behind bars serving decades of their sentences. Just roughly, as, but just because I'm interested, I mean, you know, if you were to figure in those people, like roughly speaking, what do you think that number might actually, as a practical matter, look like? It's, it's hard to do the math. It's really hard to do the math. And it's especially hard to do the math because prison is not a healthy place and people die young in prison. And by young, I mean, you know, 50s, 60s. It's very hard to live to your 80s behind bars. So so, so this is why it's kind of hard to make the calculation. But we have to think it must be considerably longer even than, than 28 years then. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the re- research methodology for the book, which I thought was, was really interesting. What, it, what actually did you sort of look at? What did you do? And sort of how did you approach the materials that the primary materials that were you were using in in preparing this book and and also kind of what sort of research did you do yourself because there were a lot of really interesting um, observations and kind of conversations that you describe in the book. 
sure, sure, happily. So the the sort of the backbone of the book is content analysis of archival materials. And by archival materials, I mean every parole hearing of every inmate of the Manson family since their first hearing up until the time that I finished the book. So that's more than 40 years of transcripts of parole hearing. Now, this may come as a surprise to many listeners, but parole hearing transcripts are public information. So this is, if, you, if you're curious to study parole hearings, you can just reach out to the Department of Corrections in your state and you can ask for them. So for a reasonable fee, they put all of these hearings, most of them were not digitized, the ones that are older, of course, they put all of them on a CD for me and they just, they mailed me the CD. And this is hundreds of thousands of pages, hundreds of thousands of transcripts. Uh, some of them a little bit difficult to read because they weren't digitized. Um, so I, I looked at those. Uh, the first thing that I did was uh, I had a re- little research group with a few of my students, and I assigned one or two inmates to each student, and they had to read that inmate's entire chronology in prison. And we did all kinds of activities pertaining to that, so that was the first once over the entire material. Then I went by myself without the student group, and I reread the whole thing by year. So, for example, you know, starting with 1978, all the hearings of everybody in 1978 all the hearings in 1979, all the hearings in 1980. So that would give me an idea of longitudinal changes, kind of like, for example, uh, a key word in the book is insight, because one of the major things that happens on a parole hearing is that they keep asking if you have insight, you're supposed to demonstrate it. So, you know, when does this word first show up? It shows up in the mid 80s and how it sort of evolves from there. So this longitudinal work allows me to do that. And then I did a third time where I read the hearings divided into the sections that uh, that the parole board uses. So every time somebody comes up for a parole hearing, the first thing that you talk about is their past, so the crime of commitment, what, what brought them into prison in the first place. Then you talk about the present, kind of what their life is like in prison, you know, their disciplinary file, you know, any rehabilitation programming they're in. And then you talk about the future. What are their plans for release? So reading the, the, the entire thing again, divided by past, present, and future, allowed me to get a sense of how much the past overshadows the other parts. And how much, even though there's this, you know, there's actually precedent from the California Supreme Court saying you can't just deny somebody parole because of the heinousness of the crime, the heinousness of the crime is basically overshadowing pretty much everything that happened since then, regardless of how you, how you talk about it. So that's the core of the book. And then in addition to that, I have interviews with lawyers that represent the inmates. I've had conversations with one of the people that are featured in the book, uh, uh, phone conversations from prison. Uh, I have uh, I visited a bunch of um, rehabilitation programs outside bars for formerly incarcerated folks that had been through the parole process and attended a couple of events that a nonprofit called Uncommon Law organizes uh, called Lifer School, which is basically teaching lawyers how to represent people on parole. So there's these observations in addition to the corpus of the book, which is based on uh, on the hearings themselves. Well, so my sense from reading the book was it seems like the expectations of the parole board have, as a practical matter, changed over time, even if like kind of in theory the process might have remained the same. Sort of how and why do you think the sort of criteria that parole boards use in determining whether or not to recommend parole have have changed and sort of what would be driving that? 
It's very tempting to describe this change in terms of right versus left, to say, you know, there's been this conservative turn in the way that we do incarceration and parole is basically mirroring everything that's going on in general and sort of increasing the amount of people people in prison. I think what's going on is a little bit more complicated than that. And I think what's going on is less than a battle between right and left. It's more of a battle between two perspectives on what it means or what we want out of the system. Up until the 70s, the late 70s, and you can still see shadows of this sort of in the process until the mid-80s, the process in California is basically governed by this idea that there are professionals whose job is therapeutic, right? They're measuring rehabilitation, you know, counselors, social workers, therapists, you know, what have you. These folks are not elected officials, and they work, you know, they toil in relative obscurity behind bars, Right. And, and they're not accountable to the public. And they basically have the scientific authority or wherewithal to decide when somebody's going to get out. So gradually, this perspective gets replaced by something that's more political, emotional, by the idea that the public has a stake in what's going on in prison. And by the public extension of the public, of course, is the public's elected official so the prosecutor, you know, the governor's office, etc., Right, that there's some kind of, uh, I would say, uh, symbolic or expressive function to the punishment, right, and that the public has has sort of has a right to be heard on on, on that. So so there's so we're moving sort of from this professional world to this more emotional world, and and interestingly, the move is happening when all the all the actors are actually very aware of this. So when the Determinate Sentencing Act gets enacted in California, Jerry Brown, the governor at the time, gets a lot of letters, not just from the ACLU from the Los Angeles Police Department, from the Legislative Analyst's Office, from a lot of folks that you wouldn't think are, you know, you know, bleeding heart, you know, liberals, saying, just trust the professionals to do their job. You know, don't let legislators be swayed by emotional appeals to kind of, you know, ratchet sentences up. And of course, everything they foresaw at the time came true, because this is exactly what happens in California. And I think it's also, in, in, in a lot of ways, California is a pioneer, but it's a U.S. trend. It's like the idea that every social problem has to end up with criminalizing something or raising sentences. So, 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 so this is basically a reflection of that. And you gradually see this change in the way that the hearings go, right? So people start coming up for parole hearings. And up until the mid-80s, it's sort of this idea that rehabilitation is as rehabilitation does, right? The counselor comes to talk about the programs you're doing, you know, vocational training. What are you learning? Did you do your GED? Are you studying how to be a welder? You know, whatever. And if, if you have a job, then, you know, then you go out and work at your job. In the mid 80s, it changes to being sort of a more internal inquiry, right? So it's not just do you regret what you've done. It's, it's a lot more introspective. And the key word here is insight. And the idea is kind of like you have to look within yourself and you have to kind of excavate your, your psyche, you know, in public, right? Because because it's basically a performance. You're performing to the board, right? So you're, so you're excavating your psyche to kind of like talk about, you know, who you were when you committed the crime, what might have created the circumstances that put you in that situation. And of course, to show to some extent how you've changed, like how you've transformed internally. And keep in mind that people come up for parole, you know, three, four, five, ten, twenty times. And if you failed before, you have to come up with some other excavation. So you're kind of like seeing people digging deep, you know, into the well of their soul, coming up with different stories every time about why they think they committed the crime. Well, I mean, it seems like this kind of what you describe is almost this kind of performative quality 
to asking for parole and sort of the expectations of the parole board can in some cases be like almost Orwellian, right? I mean, you describe one of the members of the Manson family who actually died from like an incapacitating illness while in prison and sort of what her experiences were before the parole board. I mean, I found that really troubling. I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what happened and why the parole board said that they weren't going to parole her. So I think this is the story of Susan Atkins. And I think in a lot of ways, the story of Susan Atkins tells you a lot about the story of California prisons. And it also has the power to inform a lot of what we see now with COVID-19, a lot of the, the perspective on that. So Susan Atkins went into prison in her in her early 20s. Uh, she committed the crime when she was 21. Uh, about three years afterwards, she becomes a devout Christian, a born-again Christian. Um, and basically, you know, disciplinary record, very, very thin, participating in a lot of rehabilitative programming in, in prison. And she gradually becomes very ill. Um, and when she comes to her hearing in 2009, comes is kind of a funny way to, to say this. She doesn't actually come to the hearing. She's wheeled into the hearing in a gurney. And um, those of you who read the book will see a picture of her being wheeled into. Did, did you see the, the, the picture? Of, of Yeah, yeah. So, so I made a, I made an executive decision with the book to not include any of the, you know, crime scene photos and any of the stuff that we've seen a million times that, you know, the famous pictures of them from years ago. I wanted people to see them the way that they are today. And I think that picture basically tells you everything you need to know, right? She's wheeled into the room at some point, at that point, she has a brain tumor. She can't talk. She can barely talk. She sleeps most of the hearing. She can't really hear or understand what's happening. Right. And she's represented at the hearing by her husband of 17 years, a um, guy by the name of James Whitehouse, who's a Harvard educated lawyer. Uh, and he comes in and basically, you know, she's in the room right in front of them, lying on a gurney. And they start the hearing by talking about, oh, well, the ADA accommodations mean that we have to give you, you know, uh, a hearing aid. I mean, the hearing aid's not going to do it. The woman's dying of a brain tumor. Like her husband ask, is asking for her to be released so they can spend a few months the few last months of her life at home. Uh, at the hearing, the prosecutor gets up, starts, you know, bringing up all kinds of things from 50 years ago. Why did you give her son this name and not that name? And what does it mean? Um, Deborah Tate, who is Sharon Tate's last surviving sister, gets up at the hearing, points at the gurney, says, you know, this woman is still a risk to public safety. This woman, meaning the vegetable that's on the bed, right? She's still a risk to public safety because, you know, other people are going to learn from her example. Um, James Whitehouse really loses it in front of the in front of the, the board and says, what are you talking about? Like, you know, what risk? You know, she's she's about to die. And, and they conclude, they speak directly to her at the end, and they say, we're not going to let you out. You're still a risk to public safety. And, and she dies in prison just a few months later. And, and I think this is what I talk about when I talk about the past overshadowing the present. It's you are in the room with a person who is dying in front of you, and you can't see it. And, and to me, this is, this is emblematic of the way prison looks at old age and illness, and I think we see the same thing going on now with COVID-19. We're seeing elderly people, elderly and infirm people, basically sentenced now to die by COVID, right? And, and, and California is not letting people out beyond kind of, you know, a nominal number. And then we have these debates about so-called violent people and how we're going to let out violent people. 
Well, violent people in California are people who committed a murder when they were young 40 years ago. Now they're old and they're sick and their recidivism is the lowest in the state, right? These are exactly the people you have to let out because these are the people who are in the risk groups. And I think to me, the story of Susan Atkins is really instructive in in, in how difficult it is to convince people to get past these public safety slogans and actually look at the person and say, like, what are we what are we paying taxes for? Like, what who does this serve these last few months? Of, of, of cruelty. Like, who, who, what, what good does this do in the world? Well, I thought, I thought the story of Bobby Beausoleil was really interesting and instructive as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, just kind of tell listeners who might not be familiar with him, sort of who he is and why he was sort of a little different than some of the other family members, and sort of talk a little bit about his frustrations trying to explain to the parole board how he had you know, work to rehabilitate himself. One of the interesting things about Bobby's case is the way that it's then viewed by the board in terms of what his present prison is like. In perspective, Bobby comes into prison already an accomplished musician, an accomplished actor. He already has a version. And he doesn't participate in rehabilitative programming in prison. And he says, you know, I mean, I don't need my GED. I already have a profession. He comes off as very arrogant. He doesn't suffer fools gladly. The commissioners are very offended by this. They're uh, telling him, well, you might not find work in your profession, even though he is working in prison as as he serves his sentence. They scold him for not participating, even though he's running a rehabilitative program in prison. So he's basically running the prison band. He puts together an electronic recording studio in the prison and gets no credit for any of that because that's not the official rehabilitative programming in the prison, right? At the same time, his disciplinary record is getting the side eye because of all sorts of things that are what I've seen in other cases as well. So when he goes into prison, we're talking about a white boy who comes in as a hippie and he doesn't therefore gel with the Aryan Brotherhood. So he doesn't want to join. And because of that, they see him as their enemy, right? They're his sworn enemies now. And, and they attack him. And in fact, he spends a considerable amount of his prison sentence in um, secluded housing to protect him from the Aryan Brotherhood. So one aspect of this that's, uh, that I see again in a lot of cases is that because his restricted housing status attend rehabilitative programming, this is something I see again and again, people getting dinged for not attending programming that they can't attend either because they don't exist or because they can't actually go there, right? Um, And in his case, there's also this extra twist, which is another thing I see in a lot of records, that um, prison records and prison disciplinary hearings are not written well, and mistakes get carried from year to year. So in the late 70s, there's a lot of uh, talk in his parole hearings about an incident in the yard involving a baseball bat. And he has to repeatedly explain, I was not wielding the, 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 the baseball bat. They beat me up with the baseball bat. And then year after year after year, they ask him, well, there's been this thing all that. Or here's another one. It's dinged because he smoked marijuana, he smoked a joint. And he explains to them, and this is actually something that opens you just a little window through one story to just the general misery in California prisons in terms of healthcare, right? And he says, look, I had this serious disease. You know, I waited for weeks for an appointment. They finally prescribed a medicine that made me constipated. You know, I was genuinely concerned for my life. And so I self-medicated. This is not rare. And again, taken in the context or look at this, again, the backdrop of what was going on in prison healthcare in California and still is in some way. 
up until the litigation that came all the way to the Supreme Court, a person would die every six days in a California prison from a completely preventable disease, just a function of prison neglect and, and, and mismanagement. So we're talking about people getting dinged for all sorts of things that are either written wrong. Here's another story for you, Bruce Davis. Bruce Davis gets dinged for having a knife, right? A serious offense, right? Having a knife in prison. Turns out it wasn't a knife. It was a plastic spoon, right? Because of the conditions in prison, because there's no air conditioning, because, you know, the paint is peeling and getting wet off the walls, which also is, is also a health hazard, they allowed the, the inmates to scrape the paint off the walls with a plastic spoon. And then an officer passes by and dings him for having a knife. And of course, the following year, after he explains this, again, they say, but you have a write-up for a, spoon, for, for, for a prison knife. So this gives you a little bit of, an, of, 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 a, of a window into, you know, just how carelessly these records are being put in and just what an achievement it is to spend decades in prison with fairly narrow records when every small thing can be either completely misunderstood or blown out of proportion into an issue. And whenever there's a small issue, it becomes this big discussion, right? So for example, um, Leslie Van Houten uh, gets found with a quarter on her, right? So, for, so, so this is mid eighties, right? They find a quarter in, in her jacket pocket. Like, what are you doing with a quarter? And she says, well, it wasn't my jacket, it was my friend's jacket. There's this whole speech about, well, this is just like a microcosm of your general, you know, lack of judgment. So, so every little incident like that becomes this kind of morality tale about, you know, how this person doesn't have insight and has to themselves. I couldn't help but feel like reading these stories, the, the experience of coming up for parole for a lot of these people was almost like the triumph of hope over reason, like the outcome was foreordained and the board was just going to come up with any rationale it could, no matter how spurious, in order to deny parole. I wonder if you could briefly talk about Charlie Manson himself and his own approach to parole and what, if anything, that says about sort of the nature of the parole process from the perspective of the prisoner, him or herself. Sure. And actually, Manson himself is a great example of what you just said, because out of the whole group of people that I've been studying for this book, this is the only guy who seems to have come to an absolute certainty that he's never getting out. So he just decided that he's not playing that game. He's playing his own game. And of course, this is what he's done forever, right? He's a very manipulative, charismatic guy, and, and what he does is play games. So in the early hearings, he just shows up, he dances, he curses at them, he sings, he tells them all kinds of mystical stories. Like, he basically makes it, you know, his own, his own little show. He knows he's never getting out. Um, at some point, he becomes pretty severely ill because in the 80s, another inmate sets him on fire in the yard. And, and he's also kept uh, in, in confinement, in, in solitary confinement for, for again, a big chunk of his, of his sentence. Again, they're, you know, basically dinging him for not attending programming when he can't attend programming, but, you know, it's Charlie Manson, so who knows whether he would even bother, right? The interesting part comes in the last three hearings of his life where he doesn't even bother to show up. So he's represented, there's actual lawyers who are appointed to represent him and they show up and they have all kinds of different ways to try to deal with the fact that their client's not actually in the room. 
right? One person says, you know, I just want to withdraw because I can't represent a person that I haven't met. And then there's this other guy, uh, the Jean Lewis, who, who I feature as one of the sort of the, the unsung heroes of this process in the book, who's actually trying to make an effort. Like there are some legal arguments, you know, set aside the fact that this particular person perhaps, you know, arguably is so dangerous even in his 80s that he shouldn't be let out. There are all kinds of procedural problems that he raises and says, you know, this is a legal problem, this is a legal problem. Or for example, they're saying, well, I don't see that this guy has any plan for employment. And Dijon Lewis gets up and says, well, he's 80, what kind of employment you know, do you expect him to secure? You know, there's a person who's willing to give him housing. What, what sort of plan would you expect of a person who's 80 years old to present the board, right? But the board is so discombobulated by the fact that Manson hasn't bothered to show up that they speak to him as if he's in the room. And to me, this is the epitome of the parole hearing as performance. Like they, it's in the record. Like you read the record and you see that they're saying, Mr. Manson, comma, we are speaking to you through the record, right? And they, they, they're basically talking to his empty chair. And, and to me, this is like the ultimate triumph of Charlie Manson, right? Playing people right until his death without him even having to be there. And it tells you how much this process depends on the theater of the process and how when somebody's just like, I'm not going to play this game, the whole thing falls apart. Well, so, I mean, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think the kind of the stories you tell in the book illuminate sort of in a bigger picture how the parole process actually works and what if anything they tell us about how we ought to think about how parole should work and and how we might get there so there's a number of things that i see there that are generalizable to just general things that we've seen in parole and in california punishment in particular so one thing is for example the change in the role of the prosecutor at the hearing so in the early 80s, the prosecutor comes to the hearings mostly to just kind of, you know, give legal help. You know, if there's something unclear with the record, the prosecutor explains what it was. But gradually, the role of the prosecutor expands beyond that, and he becomes uh, something that I call in the book the moral memory of the board, right? The prosecutor feels comfortable opining about people's risk, about what they do. They talk in this very florid language at some point, uh, Stephen Kay, who was one of the original prosecutors in the Manson trials and kept coming into the hearing, says, you know, about Patricia Krenwinkel, you know, this woman has ice in her vein instead of veins instead of blood. He feels comfortable asking them about their current prison sentence, which is beyond, of course, the trial stuff. Like, you know, I hear that you're drawing a lot of naked ladies. What's up with that? You know, stuff like that. He opines about women's romantic liaisons and marriages. Like he'll say, you know, you clearly didn't choose very well. How can we trust that you're going to choose well in the future? So this is a very gendered thing. The guys get dinged for drawing, you know, naked women with titties. The girls get dinged for, you know, unsuitable romantic liaisons. Uh, so, so we're seeing this expansion in the prosecutor role that tells us in general something about what prosecutors have done in uh, state and local uh, courts uh, uh, since then and, and why there's this move to progressive prosecution now. And then we're also seeing the increase, this is related to that, the increase in the role of the victims. So this is especially uh, interesting in the context of the Manson family because uh, the Tate family, first Sharon Tate's mother and later her sisters, uh, basically take this mantle, but they, beyond just advocating for their own family, they basically become the blueprint for what it is to be a good victim in California, right? To be a good victim in California, you cannot be forgiven and you have to be punitive. 
And, and in fact, in one of the instances that I talk about in the book, the Tate family actually drives away from the process another victim who wants to speak on behalf of release. So, uh, so there's a woman by the name of Susan LaBerge, uh, who is a, co- a cousin of the LaBiancas. And she strikes a very unlikely friendship with Tex Watson, the man who killed her parents, uh, on the basis of both of them being born-again Christians, and she comes to the hearing to speak on behalf of him. And later in the parking lot, and, and I'm telling you a favorable version of this because this comes directly from the Tate family memoir, Doris Tate accosts her in the parking lot and spits on her and tells her, you're a piece of shit, your parents are rolling in their graves. And of course, Suzanne LaVerge never shows up again, right, at, at the hearings. And that kind of tells you something about how we've calcified this idea in California that a good victim is a punitive victim. Like when you talk about victims of violent crime in California, you think about the Tate family, you think about Mark Class, Polly Class's father, and in many ways, the architect of the three strikes law. You don't think about the vast majority of victims in California who tend to be poor people of color, victimized related to a war. And when you actually speak to the victims that don't have a voice, which I've done working in anti-violence coalitions in Santa Rosa and in Sacramento, you don't hear this punitive stuff at all. What you hear from people is, it's just a coincidence that my son is dead and this other kid is in San Quentin. It could have easily been the other way around. The problem is not the death penalty or whether somebody gets parole or not. The problem is systematic racism and neglect and the fact that our neighborhoods are just like abandoned to fend for themselves and there's no opportunities for the kids, right? This is what you hear from victims whose voices never get heard. These are also the victims that don't have the money and the wherewithal to travel to these parole hearings and say what they feel. Now, the thing is, even the victims don't really get what they want out of this process because the whole process is so neatly choreographed right, that any apology that they're going to get from the inmate is not going to sound sincere. You know, even if it is sincere, which we have no way of knowing, it's not going to come off sincere, because how sincere can somebody be when their whole freedom depends on, you know, this kind of apology? And there's also all kinds of choreographical problems with the process that make it even less sincere, because under Title 15, which is the law that uh, basically scripts how a parole hearing should go, the inmates are not allowed to speak directly to the victims. So if you go out and you were, you know, shell-shocked by the fact that the person didn't even tell you that they're sorry, it's because they're not allowed to tell you that they're sorry. They're not allowed to talk to you. They're not allowed to look at you directly. So there has to be some way to have a conversation where victims can talk to inmates about the harms that they've done to them and get an apology that is outside of this parole realm, because in this parole realm, what is going on is not good for anyone. So, so those are just a couple of the suggestions that I make in the book. I also suggest to depoliticize the process by taking the governor out of the picture. There is nothing that this adds to the parole board. I think that the current trend, which is actually very welcome, where, uh, where parole commissioners get uh, continuing education on social work and, and psychology and, and various other issues has to continue. We have to diversify the board a lot. When I talk about diversify, I don't necessarily mean in terms of US census diversity, because when you go to the California Department of Correction website, you see people of various races and various genders, but you don't see any diversity in backgrounds. Everybody comes from law enforcement. We've got to mix this up with people from therapeutic professions, people who have knowledge that is very relevant to the question of rehabilitation. And most of all, I think we have to let go of the idea that we can look at somebody and we have a mystical ability to tell if they're a good person or a bad person. 
The first thing is that I don't think it's the job of the parole board to tell good people from bad people. You don't need the person to be good. You just need them to not commit crime and, and endanger public safety. There's plenty of bad people going around outside, too. As long as we don't commit crime, they're not bothering me, right? That's not the issue. But the idea that you'd be looking at somebody and you can tell if they're sincere or not, we know from robust social psychology that this, this, this doesn't have any purchase. This is not, this is not real. And in fact, we know from research that the people that are most certain in their ability or have this hubris that they can tell who's telling the truth, who's really remorseful or whatever, are the people who do least well in blind studies where they have to pick truthful people from lying people. So we need to get rid of this hubris. And we really have to come to this idea that rehabilitation is as rehabilitation does. People age out of crime in their 30s, right? If you have somebody who's in their 50s, they're not going to commit crime again in all likelihood if they have opportunities and a job and supportive people on the outside. And most importantly, we can't exit this Kafkaesque process unless we really have a true rehabilitative program in prison that has a carry-on on the outside, where there's a continuum, where you learn a vocation, you learn a profession, you educate yourself in prison, and then you go outside and there is a helping hand out there to help you find a house and find a job. This is not what is happening now. And if we're really about protecting public safety rather than just making noise as if we care about public safety, this is what we need to do, is we need to create the kind of opportunities for people when they get out where they don't, where they, they don't have to commit crime. Well, so Hadar, in closing, uh, I noted that you used the Tibetan Book of the Dead as a framing device in your book. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and why you found that a helpful way of thinking kind of philosophically about the nature of the parole system. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is a fascinating read, uh, and it basically walks you through the process of um, accompanying someone who has recently died through the different stages that they pass in the Tibetan afterlife before it is decided whether they're going to uh, basically exit the reincarnation cycle and achieve nirvana or be reborn and come back into the the cycle of samsara, the cycle of, of, of life and death and rebirth. And, and those concepts, those, those passages that they pass on the way are called the bardos. So the bardo is, uh, I would say, for, for listeners who are more familiar with, with the Christian cosmology, the bardo is maybe the equivalent of purgatory, except there isn't exactly heaven and hell in, in Tibetan cosmology. But the bardo is this place where you are where you're not yet sure what's going to happen to you. And you see your karma being weighed against you and past, present, and future are mixing for you. And, and, and then there's the, the kind of like, what's, what's the outcome going to be? Um, in many ways, this book is perhaps the most Buddhist thing I've ever written because uh, through, essentially the bardo is a very powerful metaphor for me for what happens on parole. It's this purgatory situation where you're constantly, you know, your karma gets reshuffled and, and reheard and, and, and the quotes at the beginning of the chapters are orienting people to, to, to what that experience is like. Later in the process of working on the book, I found out that Bobby Bozzolet actually uh, painted a painting called The Ride Out of Bardo, which depicts this skeleton-like creature, you know, riding this enormous motorcycle out of purgatory. And, uh, and it became clear to me that the bardo is the way people experience this process. But in a lot of ways, it's not just the poorly hopefuls that are in bardo. We're all in bardo because we're all paying for this. 
And we're all sustaining these unsustainable essential ideas about goodness and badness. We are keeping these political facades that have nothing to do with risk or danger or rehabilitation. And we all have to walk out of Bardo together. And, and I think this is the message of the book, that the, the way that we're doing this now with the layers of artifice and performance and damned if you will and damned if you won't that we have in there are not only not serving the people that are actually in the physical bardo, but they're not serving all of us either. We have to get out of there and we have to do it by reforming the process. Well, Hadar, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your book. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it, and I've also deeply enjoyed talking to you about it. And I really hope listeners will check it out because there's so much more in there that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Thank you. This was really fun. Ain't nobody with no soul 